take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, as we continue our study, I will be talking about all of Proverbs 4 this morning and the Lord willing the next two weeks in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Earlier this year, I announced that we were teaching a class, Doug Nix and I would be teaching a Wednesday night class titled, How People Change. And someone came up to me a few days after I made that announcement and said, I need some clarity about the class. I'm thinking about taking it, but I'm not sure if I'm going to take it. I need to know, is this class teaching us how we can change or how we can change other people? I thought that's a great question. Because the reality is most of us would agree that our life would be much better if someone else changed. Can I say, can we have an amen to that, right? How many of you know someone else that needs to change, right? Raise your hand. How many of you know somebody that really needs to change a lot? How many of you would say, my life would be so much better if this person changed? Raise your hand. Yeah, I know it. Some of you are raising a little too high, but it's true. I hope that person's not next to you. Um, but we have a tendency to think that, right? That, that, that our life would be so much better if this thing changed or that thing changed, or specifically maybe if someone in our life changed. This week we had this marriage conference. It was, it was really, really good. And we had about 350 people that came and gathered for the marriage conference. And the speaker got up and he gave about five minutes of just, you know, glad I'm here, da, 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 here's who I am, all this stuff. And then he came out with his first statement right out of the gate, which I don't think was the statement that anyone was expecting that chose to sign up for a marriage conference. The first statement was this, I am my biggest problem. To which everyone I think was going, wait a minute, I signed up because they're my biggest problem. You know, we had this funny thing happen when we were doing registration. We noticed that a few people had, had, it looked like they had signed up twice. Their name was twice and we couldn't figure out why. And what we realized is because both husband and wife signed up independently of one another. And I think both of them were thinking, oh, we're going to this because he needs some serious help. And the other thought, we're going to this because she needs some serious help. And I think when he started this way, a lot of people were discouraged because the reason you might've attended a marriage conference is to see your spouse changed. And then he starts by saying, you are your biggest problem. But it's true. It's true. That the biggest problems that we face are not external circumstances. The biggest problems we face are not our disappointments or our sufferings. And the biggest problem we face is certainly not the other people in our lives, no matter how difficult they might be. The biggest problem we face is in this little hidden part of us which the Bible calls the heart. From the heart comes all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, and all of our actions. Can you just think about the significance of that statement? Every emotion in your life, whether it be the grumpiness or the anger or the bitterness or the resentment, every emotion that comes out of you is coming from your heart. One of the greatest lessons I learned from studying the book of Psalms is that our emotions are oftentimes the greatest window into our hearts. They are not to be ignored because they are saying something about what is really going on inside of us. Every action, every action, or maybe every lack of action or overreaction or reaction, every single action is not 
isolated from your heart. It is flowing from your heart. And every thought, every single thought that goes through your mind is a thought that is coming from your heart. The truth is the heart, and this is, I think, the best way to see this, is the control center of your life. It is the control center of your life. Everything in your life is being controlled by what is going on in your heart. Everything flows from it. And this was, in many ways, the primary message of Jesus over and over to the religious leaders of the day. Because they had created a system that existed to change people from the outside in. That focused on behavior, that focused on action. But Jesus came in knowing that it was impossible for anyone to be changed simply by their outward actions. One of the greatest examples of that is in Matthew 15. When the religious leaders are frustrated with Jesus because they noticed that his disciples did not wash their hands before they ate. So they said to him, why do your disciples not wash their hands before they eat? And the religious leaders weren't just obsessed with manners. They weren't just trying to protect themselves from what would it be, COVID BC 05, right? They're, they're not, that's not the thought, right? You got to wash your hands. They were teaching that all day people touched things that were unclean and defiled. And so then if they touch something that was defiled and unclean and then they touch food and they put that food inside of their mouth, then they became unclean and defiled. So he's saying, Jesus, your disciples are, are unclean before God. And if you say you're the Messiah, why would you not care about that? Jesus responds that they've gotten the entire thing wrong, that what goes into your body is not what is defiling you. What defiles you is what comes out of you. Listen to how he says it in, in Matthew 15. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and that defiles a person. Now listen to verse 19, Matthew 15, 19. This is a very important verse for us today. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that dirty hands don't send someone to hell. A dirty heart sends someone to hell. It is an unbelievable statement Jesus makes that every matter of, of our thought life, every thought of sexual immorality, every action, every emotion, every desire, immorality, theft, murder, adultery, false witness, slander, lying, slandering, talking negative about someone else, those are not simply bad habits. That's a revelation of your heart. And then if you go just back a few pages to Matthew 5 in which Jesus is saying that adultery is not simply the act. It is the action of the heart. If you understand that murder is not simply the act, but it is the hatred of the heart, then all of a sudden we come to understand that it's not simply that we're doing wrong things, that our hearts are often not right. And Jesus wanted his disciples to understand as he spoke to them in front of the religious leaders 
that the problem of our lives is a problem of, of the heart. And if we want to see our lives change in any significant way, we have to see a change in the heart. And what God is looking at and what God cares about is the heart. So praise God you came to church today. And I'm so thankful you're here. But the reality is like God doesn't get happy with you because you chose to walk into a church building. God is looking at the condition of our heart and our desires and our affections and our longings and our wants. Just by the providence of God, Josiah and I last night were, were reading and we came to the story of Samuel needing a new king because Saul had turned his heart away from God. And God told Samuel, the prophet, to go to Jesse's house to find a kid. And uh, Samuel gets there and Jesse has these seven sons lined up. And Saul goes to the first one and he's big and he's strong and he's handsome and he probably has great hair. And he says, certainly that's the king. And the Lord says, no, that's, that's not the one. He goes to the next one. Well, certainly this is the king. And no, that's not the one. And he goes through all seven and God says to every one of them, that's not the king. And so then the Lord says to Samuel, there's got to be another one. Samuel says to Jesse, well, is, do you have another son? He said, well, yes, but he's little, he's young, he watches sheep. I don't know how to say this, but he plays the harp and writes poetry. <laughs> so I just assumed he's not the guy. Like, I just kind of thought, if you're looking for a king, he may not be the one. And Samuel says, well, go get him. And he comes and the Lord says, Samuel, that's the one. And then Samuel learns this lesson that God is looking at something that we are not. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And what he saw in young David is a love for God, a purity of heart, a desire for God, affections for God, a longing to please the Lord cultivated in a lot of time spent alone with God. And no one else would have seen it, but God saw it. Why? Because God is looking at our heart. But for some reason, all of us, I would imagine, like the Pharisees tend to focus all of our attention on the externals. We tend to focus on what is often called behavior modification. I just need to modify my behavior. And we focus on ourselves, like this action needs to change, but we also do that with others. We, we look at others and say, well, that action needs to change. But if we continue to focus on behavior, but not look at the heart, it's essentially like mowing the lawn over your weeds and it looks good for a couple of days, but then the weeds come back up and then you mow the lawn again and the weeds come back up. You have never dealt with what's below the surface. You have never dealt with the root issue. So it is most people who want to see change, which all of us in some way want to see change. We try so many external things to change us when the Lord is simply saying the change that needs to take place is in the heart. And the only real lasting change that will take place must take place there. Why? Because that is the control center of our lives. There was a massive shift within Christian, within Christianity, and within the church uh, about 20 years ago in the way in which people started thinking about parenting. Because I think particularly in many churches that tended to be more legalistic, the goal of parenting was to raise good kids who did good things, listen, who made me look good. There are a lot of parents that don't want kids, they want trophies. They just want a good little kid they can hold up there because they believe that that will reflect good on them. And so they're not trying to create kids that love Jesus. They're just trying to create kids that do the right things. 
There's a book that came out a few years ago that kind of moved the, the direction to say, listen, let's shepherd children's hearts. Let, let's think about the heart of a child, not just the actions of the child. The last thing we need is more Pharisees. We got plenty of those. Let's try to find a way to to be fathers and mothers who are dealing with the root issue, the control center. And that's exactly what the father is doing here in the book of Proverbs. He's not content just to have a good guy in his house that obeys the rules and makes him look good. And God deliver us from that desire. God deliver any parent in this room from the desire, just a good kid that does the right things and doesn't embarrass me. Because that kid can go to hell. He can do the right things and not embarrass you and go to hell. And so the father here is saying, listen, my goal is not just a good kid. I, I want a kid whose heart is right. And so he prays and he instructs and he teaches and he, he pleads that God might do something inside of this child. And it's exactly the way the father treats us. And one of the beautiful things about Proverbs, as we listen to the way the father speaks to the son, we realize this is God the father speaking to us. And this is God the father saying, I love you and I want good from you. I don't, I don't just need more trophies. I want your heart to be right. I want you to love me. I want you to have affections for me. You say, well, doesn't that make God so self-centered? No, because you are at your best and have the most joy and the most peace when you are in a right relationship with God and your heart is pure. And God knows that. And so the book of Proverbs talks to us so much about the heart. Maybe the central theme is this idea of having a heart that is right with God. If you read through Proverbs, you would find verses on a wise heart an anxious heart, a deceitful heart, a bitter heart, a tranquil heart, a glad heart, a cheerful heart, a bitter heart, a raging heart, a grumbling heart, a pure heart. And some of you might say, well, I, I have some of those and maybe not the good ones, but the reality is, is, is it reminds us that the book of Proverbs is trying to teach us how to, how to have a heart that is right and how to have a heart that is bearing good fruit so that others are blessed by what is coming out of my heart. And kind of the weight of it all rests upon this one verse in Proverbs 4, verse 23. Look at it there, Proverbs 4, 23. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. I believe everything in Proverbs 4 is in some way tied to the truth of that verse. It is a sobering verse that should, I think some ways, which we'll see in a minute, make us hopeful, but others should terrify us and humble us at the significance of what's going on in here. The word keep and the word vigilance are both very similar. They both mean to guard and to protect. They both mean to put a wall around something. So it's saying here that we should guard our heart with all protection, with all these borders. We guard it with all of these guards. But the words with all there are significant because they mean above everything else. So really he's saying above everything else, with great diligence as the greatest priority of your life, put a protection around your heart. Guard the condition of your heart. That is an amazing statement. God the Father is saying to us this morning, 
that of utmost importance, give the greatest effort, the greatest attention, the greatest diligence to what's going on in your heart. Well, why is it so important? Because the second part of the verse, because from it, from your heart are flowing the springs of life. And that word springs is a very interesting Hebrew word that means the outermost areas, the, the farthest places, the, the absolute limits. So what that means is this, is that what is coming out of your heart cannot be contained. What is coming out of your heart goes to the furthest limits. It affects every area of your life. There is no part of your life that will not be affected to the furthest parts of your life, to the limits of your life. By what is happening in your heart. Everything physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, in your family, in your work, in your own morality. Everything will be touched by what is going on in your heart. The way that I kind of picture it when I think about this idea of flowing and springs of life. Imagine this with me. I think this helps. Imagine your heart is like a little bowl. And it can't contain very much. But every single thing you're hearing and everything you're seeing and every place you're going and every word that comes out of your mouth and every thought in your mind, listen, is going into this bowl. And there's never a moment when something's not going in. There's never a moment. Because even if you're left all alone in complete silence, you've still got thoughts and intentions and desires. So something is always going into the bowl, which means this, it is impossible for it not to overflow. And listen, God has designed it to overflow. This is why Jesus says in what in my mind is becoming my most important verse for our church in John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus intended for what is in this bowl to constantly overflow and to affect everyone in our lives. And if you think that everyone is not affected by what's coming out of your heart, then you do not even understand the basics of the way the heart works. So here's this little bowl and and what is in it matters and what goes in it in many ways is determined by us because it's overflowing and you can't stop the overflowing of it. You may be able to hide it for a moment, but eventually it'll come out. You know, one of the things I like to tell men when I talk to them is that the sins that you do not deal with when you're young do not get better with age, they get bigger with age. It's true for ladies too, but I just say this to men all the time. So I think we think, well, this will get better someday. They don't get better, they get bigger. Why? Because although you might be able to suppress it for a while, at some point, what is in your heart will overflow. It will be seen. It will manifest itself in your life. And so it is, Proverbs 4 has been given to us to help us know how to cultivate a heart that is right with God and therefore overflows with life and blessing and good fruit. Let me read the chapter, and then I just want to make two comments. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts, and do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me. I'm not going to say anything about it, but this is really good instruction for parents. And he said to me, let your heart Hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget. And do not turn away from the words of my mouth. 
Do not forsake her. Her is wisdom and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Verse 10. Hear, my son, and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the path of uprightness. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Listen to these next two beautiful verses. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Here's the second part of the chapter, starting in verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words and incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart for their life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. How can we see lasting change in our lives? How can we create a pure heart that gives life to everyone around us? There are two ways. First, you must receive a new heart. Write that down. You must receive a new heart. That is verses 1 through 19. Verses 1 through 19 remind us of a truth we learned in our first week in Proverbs, which I'm sure I don't need to remind you of, but I will. It is this, that wisdom is always a person and a path. And the reason this is important is because we have a tendency to go to the book of the Proverbs and think that this is just good advice to be better people. We tend to think, well, I need business help and business advice. And sure, I want to do it God's way, but I'm going to go to the book of Proverbs to learn better things. But God wants to make sure we understand that the book of Proverbs is not just chicken soup for the church going soul. It's more than that. First Corinthians 1 says, Jesus is the wisdom of God. The embodiment of wisdom is Jesus. And so to take hold of wisdom for New Testament believers is to take hold of, of Jesus. And the reason wisdom is personified here is because it's reminding us that wisdom is a person. And it constantly emphasizes the path of wisdom and the way of wisdom and, and the feet that walk the way of wisdom. Why? Because wisdom is also a pathway. It is a way in which we walk. It is a person in which we trust and is a pathway in which we walk. So that's why you cannot understand Proverbs without Proverbs 1.7, which says this. The beginning of the wisdom is to fear the Lord. Meaning the father stops the son and says, listen to this. Before I give you any of this advice, nothing matters unless you first come into a right relationship with God. 
You have to make a decision first to get into a right relationship with God. The Old Testament calls that fearing the Lord. That is means seeing God for who he is, knowing his holiness and his glory, and knowing that unless there is a savior, you can never stand before a holy God. And then causing you to look to Jesus Christ for mercy, receiving Jesus' death as the payment for your sins, and then choosing to follow him. There is no wisdom without that. And verses 1 through 19 are reminding us that you've got to take hold of the person of wisdom. You've got to get Jesus. And you've got to take hold of the way of wisdom. The way we say it at Prince is we want to lead you to trust and follow Jesus. Say with me, trust and follow Jesus. That's what we mean. And the reason that that's so essential is because unless you do that, you don't have a heart worth guarding. I love the verse in verse 7, and some of you chuckled a little bit when we read it. It's great. I mean, this is a fantastic verse. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Isn't that great? So profound. That's a great verse. Here's the first thing you got to do if you want wisdom. Get it. (laughs) Well, what it's saying is this. You've got to take hold of the person of wisdom. You've got to choose the path of wisdom. Nothing else matters unless you've made a decision first. I'm going to choose Jesus Christ. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to give my life to him. And I'm going to follow him as best as I can by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if you have not made that decision, you don't have a beating, living, spiritual heart. Romans 1.21 says that the heart of the unbeliever is foolishness and dark. One of the first sermons I ever preached in my life was from Ezekiel 36. I pray often that no one has a recording of that sermon and no one will ever hear it again. I meant well. But what captured me in my time with the Lord reading Ezekiel 36 is this idea that I had learned for the very first time that God did not save us primarily just to save us, but for his own glory, that, that he wants to make himself known and, and he loves us and longs to save us, but he is doing it for his name's sake because it says in Ezekiel 36, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have been profaning. I'm gonna vindicate the holiness of my great name. I'm gonna make myself known through the acts of mercy and grace that I display upon you. But then here's what he says. He says, the problem is you continue to rebel and continue to reject me. And so how am I going to take this rebellious people filled with what he calls in Ezekiel spiritual adultery? You just keep prostituting yourself. It says over and over in Ezekiel 20 and 34 to these false gods. So what am I going to do? Here's what he says, Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rule. So the old covenant teaches that the rules are not enough. We have to have something happen inside of us. And he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So here are people that are are real flesh. They're walking. They're doing things. They're making decisions. They're having kids. They're going to work. They're real people that are walking. And everything seems fine. But inside of them, there is a heart of stone that has no spiritual life. You say, what do you do? Like, how how do you get a new heart? Well, that's the question Nicodemus asked in John 3. You must be born again. 
You need spiritual life. You need the very life of God to come and take out your old dead heart of stone and replace it with a living beating heart. It is what we call regeneration. Regeneration is the supernatural work of the spirit of God that takes away your old dead heart and gives you a beating heart. And so if you have no love for the things of God, listen very carefully. If you have no love for the things of God, no desire for God, that the things of the Lord do not stir you, then most likely the reason is because you have a heart of stone. And everyone has a heart of stone until the work of regeneration comes. And what God does is he begins to to give us this new heart and we have a desire for him and a longing for him. And then as a result of that, we place our faith and trust in him. And so here's the good news. If you have any desire for God, that is the supernatural work of God giving you a new heart. That's an amazing thought because you cannot take your heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. That's a supernatural work of God. So the bad news is this. If you don't know Jesus, there is really no hope for any real lasting change. If you don't know Jesus, there's no hope for any real lasting change. You you can try to be moral as long as you want, but no one will find any life-giving spirit from what's coming inside of you. The good news is this. This is amazing news. That when you come to Jesus, he gives you a new heart. And that new heart has the capability of change. That new heart has the capability of the spirit of God. That new heart can be completely transformed. You can change if you have a new heart. The most amazing thing of all is that the very spirit of God is dwelling in you, changing you and speaking you to you and working on you. There is hope for real lasting change. And so I don't know how hopeless you feel because of some area that you cannot change. Listen, if you have a spiritual heart through trusting Jesus Christ and the supernatural work of regeneration, you can change. There's so much hope for you to change, but you must have a new heart. The second part is this, verses 20 through 27. You must not only receive a new heart, but you must guard your new heart. You must guard your new heart. About 10 years ago, Andrea and I needed new couches. And what we did, and I'm not, I'm not knocking this. This is great. This, I love this store. I'm just saying, when you have five children and you need new couches, we went to rooms to go. And we didn't want to spend a lot of money on couches We just wanted some couches that could have stuff spilled on them and we weren't going to get mad. Okay. And so for 10 years, we've had these couches and they have served us well. They're a part of the family. They don't really look like couches much anymore. They have some strange shapes and all parts of it. And the other day, Andrea said to me, she goes, Josh, I think it's time for new couches. And she's not only right, it's, we're probably four years past when it was time for new couches. But here's the reason I don't want new couches is because if one of my kids grabs some fettuccine Alfredo without a bowl and eats it on the couch, I don't care. You can come to my house right now. I don't care. Take the peanut butter and jelly, both, no bread, spoons. Go to town on my couch. I don't care what you do. I don't care what's spilled on my couch. Why? Because no matter what you spill on my couch, it will not be as bad as the other stuff that's previously been spilled on my couch. And there's evidences of that all over. During COVID, there was this big slime thing where everybody's making slime. There's so much 
slime. All, I'm just telling you. And it's just there's something so freeing about not caring if someone spills on the couch. But here's the problem. If we get a new couch, I'm going to care. I'm going to care because I spent good money and we're probably going to go to a nicer place and I'm going to get good couches and I just am not convinced it's time yet. I don't want to start caring about protecting the couch because I know exactly what's going to happen. Josiah is going to want to watch something and he's going to grab the big tub of cheese balls and don't judge me. Those things are delicious and nutritious. All right. The big, we got the big one. So, uh, and he's going to grab those and he's going to head to the couch and I'm going to say, listen, Buster, you are not taking the cheese balls on the couch because they go on the fingers and then they wipe on the couch cheese balls in the kitchen. And I like living in a way that I don't care if the cheese balls go to the couch. This feels good to me. What's supposed to happen to us when we come to know Jesus is we're supposed to be overwhelmingly aware of the grace of God in giving us a brand new pure heart. A brand new pure heart. Cleansed from all sin and all defilement by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we should want to protect it. We should want it to stay clean and pure. And I think we, we've not thought carefully about what happens to us in salvation, that God has given us this incredible new heart and what we should want to do then is protect it and to guard it that it might remain pure before the Lord. That is exactly the, the point of the following verses. It, it's like what Paul tells Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 6.20, guard what has been entrusted to you, not just the gospel, but there's something that has been given you. God is living inside of you. The spirit of God is with you. Guard that, protect that. And verses 20 through 27, tell us how to do that. How to, how to take care and protect this heart that God has given us. And I wish I could be more profound and I wish I could be more deep and I wish I could impress you by the things I'm about to say. But the reality is the whole point of verses 20 through 27 are this, be careful little ears, what you hear. Be careful little ears, what you hear. You could join and not just leave me out here. For the father up above is looking down in love. So be careful little ears, what you hear. Be careful little feet where you go. Be careful little mouth, what you say. Be careful little eyes, what you see. That's it. Did you notice when we read how much emphasis is on the ears and the, and the eyes and the feet and the mouth? Look at verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear. The word incline means to turn your ear towards me. Act like you're listening and don't just listen. Take this into your heart. Let them not escape from your sight. So those are ears and, and eyes. Verse 25 or verse 24. Put away from you crooked speech and devious talk. Let your eyes look directly forward. Your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your, of your feet and your ways will be sure. What he's saying is that, that your ears and your eyes are these receptors and everything you see and everything you hear comes into your heart. That, that should make us immediately say, Lord, I need help. Everything in your eyes, everything in your ears going directly into the heart, which again will one day overflow and come out. 
But it's not just that, it is, it is the words of our mouth. It is the, the pathway of our feet. And as much as I, I would love to be more complicated, the song was right. It is those things which are most controlling our heart. So let's think about them for, for just a minute. I want to say to you first, you have to keep hearing the right voices. This is our ears. We have to keep hearing the right voices. So chapter starts, verse 1, with, with this constant refrain, oh son, hear me. Oh son, listen to me. I think every one of these conversations, apart from one, starts with something like this, son, listen to me, hear me. There's 10 references to the ears in verse 4. Don't forsake my teaching. Verse 10, hear my son and accept my words. Years of life will they will, they will add to you. Verse 11, I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the path of righteousness. Verse 13, keep hold of my instruction. Do not let it go. The, the vision I get is Psalm 1 where you have this, this picture of a man who is this, this deeply rooted tree. And he bears fruit in its season. And everything he does prospers. And you're supposed to see, say, I want to be that. I want to be deeply rooted and stable. I don't want to be tossed aside by everything that comes my way. And I want to bear fruit. And I want the people I love and the people I'm around and my friends and my spouse to honestly feast off of the fruit of my life. That everyone would be blessed. That the culture of my home, the place in which I live is better because of the fruit that's coming out of my life. How do you get there? He meditates on the word day and night. He's, he's hearing the word of God. He is consuming the right voices. You think about Psalm 19, that it is the word of God that is restoring my soul. It is the, the word of God that is taking the simple and making him wise. It is the word of God that is taking my faint heart and restoring it. And it is without question the most repeated theme in Proverbs 1 through 9. The voices that you're hearing are affecting your heart. Listen, everything you watch affects your heart. Every song you listen to affects your heart. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be legalistic, but this is just a fact. Everything you watch and everything you hear affects your heart. And so we keep hearing the right voices. Second, we keep moving in the right direction. We have to keep, we have to keep our feet moving in the right direction. We see so much of this idea in verses 12 through 19, I won't read it, but all this idea of walking and stepping and running and walking in the way and turning away. But look at verses 18 and 19. These were probably the most um, insightful to me in this text. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. So just look at this, look at this. Those who are choosing to walk with the Lord, and by the Spirit of God, they're choosing to walk in the way of the Lord. They're doing what is right. They're making difficult decisions. They're asking God to help them. Their life is like the sunrise and it comes up and up and up and up, which means your path just keeps getting brighter and brighter and your heart keeps getting brighter and brighter and God keeps shining in your heart and everything is brighter. But the opposite is this, verse 19, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So those who are walking in the right paths have this progressive illumination. There is a light that is shining in their heart. There is a brightness to their eyes and their life. Every step is bringing greater clarity and awareness and joy and peace and glory and blessing and understanding of the things of God. This is why 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, The light of the glory of God has shone in our hearts. So listen to this. Think about this with me. Paul talks a lot about this. 
If the light of the glory of God has shone in our hearts and our hearts are now bright and awake and aware, why would we continue to darken them by continuing to put things in them that make them dimmer? The light of the glory of Christ is in your heart. The light of the glory of Christ. What he's saying is, as you walk in the right direction, you're following the right path, you know more of that light, but do not walk in the ways that bring darkness. Third, keep speaking the right words, hearing the right voices, moving in the right direction, hearing, or I mean, sorry, speaking the right words. Keep speaking the right words. Proverbs 18, 21 says, life and death is in the power of the tongue, which means every word you say is He's either giving life or death. And so that's why verse 24 looks as put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk from you. Now, if you're with me, say amen. Listen to this. I, could, I couldn't figure this out this week because the words of my mouth are coming from my heart, but then immediately it says that I should watch out for the words of my mouth because they're affecting my heart. And so which one is true? Are the words coming from my heart or are the words affecting my heart? And the answer is both are true. Here's why it's true. Yes, every word that comes out of my mouth is coming from my heart. So if I have a problem with perverse talk or profanity or anger or outrage or belittling comments to my wife or my children, all of those things, that's a heart issue. But the other is true. If the words coming out of your mouth are pessimistic and defeated and discouraging and sinful, those words coming out of your mouth will also continue to affect your heart. So you deal with the heart issue, but you also deal with the mouth issue. And you realize that if the words coming out of your mouth are words of the Lord, if they are words that are positive, and they are words that are enthusiastic, if they are words that are optimistic of love and faith and blessing, then what happens is the words that are coming out of your mouth are actually coming back and changing your heart. Both things are true. That's why the warnings of, of watching your mouth. But the last thing I want you to see is this. Hear the right voices, move in the right direction, speak the right words, and listen. Keep gazing at the right person. Keep gazing on the right person. I want to end with these last three verses. There's such an intensity here. Let your eyes look directly forward and, and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your way from evil. So it ends with this intensity, this focus. I'm looking to where I'm going. I'm not going to the right. I'm not going to the left. I'm pondering the path of my feet to make sure it's going in the right direction. I am gazing at something. Everything about this is this intensity of desire and focus and direction. I was really captured by that word gaze. Keep your gaze somewhere. This is like this, this peering look. And, and keep your gaze straight in front of you because you're going to go the direction that you're looking. So keep your gaze. I just wondered how is it that our gaze is affecting us so much? And here's the reason. 2 Corinthians 3 gives us this illustration of Moses. We talked about this last year, going up to the mountain to receive the law and he met with God and he came down and his face was glowing so much that he had to put a veil over his face because people could not look at him because the glory of God was all over him, okay? But here's what it says in 2 Corinthians. I wanna leave you with this picture in your mind. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, with unveiled faces, no veil, we're beholding the glory of the Lord. 
Because of Jesus Christ, we can behold the glory of the Lord. We can see him in his glory. We can understand him through his word. We can gaze upon the beauty of Christ. And those who do are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So listen to this. When it comes to our walk with Jesus Christ and it comes with how life with Jesus works, there is this practical side of it. The practical side says this, you've got to stop watching that. It's just true because it's affecting your heart. You have to stop listening to that. You have to stop talking like that. Stop being mean. Stop speaking in a way that's demeaning. Stop trying to elevate your own sense of worth by putting someone else down with your words. Stop consuming so much of the screen. There's just practical things that you have to do. And those things matter. And you can't neglect those things. We don't just let go and let God. You are changed by the practical steps of discipline and help that you get from brothers and sisters in Christ and accountability. There's things you must do. But there is this mysterious work of God that happens this way. As you choose to be thinking daily about Christ and you're thinking about the gospel and you're thinking about the effect of the gospel and you're reading the word and you're gazing at Christ through the word, what happens in an unexplainable way is you start getting transformed into the image of Jesus. And I can't give you anything practical for that. I can't explain that. It is the mysterious work of a God who loves you and is for you and cares about you. And he says, gaze at me. Think about me. Look at me. Keep your eyes on me. And step by step, moment by moment, I will transform you into my image. I will change your Because those who gaze on the right person will have their heart transformed. And all we want is our heart transformed. Not just that we can do better things, but the very life of God might come through us and bless everyone else around us. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.